one of eight. Just eight spirits of the day. My breath smells like cheese and oak and smoke. And I'm forever grateful to tradition and libation project for allowing us to be able to taste so many mezcals today. Yeah, that's so incredible. They let us borrow eight. Mezcal is so near and dear to my heart, almost as much, no, as much as wine and natty wine, except for the fact that I'm so glad I don't keep it at home because it's a spirit and I love it. (laughs) Today's all about Mexico. I'm going to talk about two Mexican composers. I'm Emily Reese. And uh, Jill Mott Sommelier is with me, and you're going to talk about Mezcal. Well, wait, toot your own horn as well. Jill Mott Sommelier, that's fine. Emily <laughs> Reese, music extraordinaire, music expert person. in the classical jazz world of music. Yeah. And maybe UB40. I don't know. I just, I was throwing <laughs> something modern. I don't <laughs> even know what to, whatever. No, maybe not UB40. Thank God, no. But I'm super excited about these two composers. One is living and one was a 20th century composer. He died in the late 70s. So today it's all about Carlos Chavez and Gabriela Ortiz. And today, I already alluded to, I'm going to talk about Mezcal. I can't wait. This is something I've known you for a while now, and I've heard you talk about Mezcal, how much you love Mezcal, all the things. Mm -hmm. And I've never had any effing Mezcal and I know, I'm one, so excited. One time you were like, Jill, so next time we taste wine or spirits or something together, could it be mezcal? And I was like, no, because I can't, like, I purposefully don't have it at home because it is a very, it's like the caffeine of alcohol. Mm. So, Like, it gives you energy. It's like one of the few drinks, yeah. you know, alcohol is a depressant and it makes mm-hmm. you tired or sad or whatever. Mm-hmm. And this does not do that. It's also... I think it's extremely terroir driven. For me, I love that there's this place called Centro, a North Minneapolis. Here in, in, yep. Yeah. And they, you know, they have tacos, they have uh, different shades of uh, kind of Mexican inspired food, and they have a mezcal program. And it's a, it's a pretty darn great one for being like North, like Midwest, North Midwest, you know? Yeah. And over the past few years, pre COVID, I would go into Centro post-service, and I would usually go, I don't know, maybe once a month, maybe once every two to three weeks, and I got to know the bartenders there, and they would learn Jill Mott doesn't want the two-ounce pour, even though it's a better deal. Jill Mott <laughs> wants the one-ounce pour, and Jill Mott wants two different mezcals. She wants either mezcals that are from, let's just say, the same type of agave, the same sub-genre but made totally differently. So I could learn the differences of, you know, what copper still tastes like versus a wood still versus a clay still, or totally different strands or, you know, subgenres of agave made totally the same way. Hmm. And I usually would tell them like price doesn't matter. One, one you know, once in a while I'd be like, okay, we got to keep it under 20, 20 bucks or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But like, and I'm so glad I came to this spirit late in my wine years, because if I came to it early, I would have thwarted wine altogether. Do you think? Well, just at the time that I got into wine in the early 2000s, like natural wine wasn't a thing. And so it took about five or six years for me to get on that bandwagon and learn more about that. Mm -hmm. Not even that bandwagon, because there wasn't one at the time here. But with Mezcal, it's, it's always been about the artisan. And it's just very recently that conventional bigger houses, liquor brands are coming into that world. But yeah, it's like, and it's dangerous because it's energetic and it's strong. Yeah. And I never can really have more than two. But if, you know, I don't know, different points in your life, you probably could. So I just, I think it's lovely. It's very beautiful. I love how you just get that you start to learn about different mezcaleros in their hand like what their hand does to these agave plants, to the distillation, just like a winemaker. It's yeah. just fascinating. I love it. Neat. I know. Well, let's try some because there's eight. So I don't know <laughs> if we're going to try all eight today, but let's at least get rolling right away on let's, something. Let's, let's get rolling. And I, I will tell people more about how, of course, what mezcal even means. Yeah. But let's just taste two to get your feet wet. Yeah, that sounds great. I remember asking you, and I know I've asked you, more than once. Well, it's made from agave. It's from Mexico. Does it taste like tequila? 
So what, what do you say to someone who asks that ridiculous question, as I've now learned it's ridiculous? Well, it's totally not ridiculous. I would say that all tequila is mezcal because mezcal needs to be, it's a spirit distilled from agave in the country of Mexico. Now, tequila is done from blue agave most of the time. We won't talk about nefarious activities. And it's done in the region of Jalisco, which is like northwest of Mexico City, I don't know, like Minneapolis to Chicago, about six hours. Oh, I didn't know it was a specific... You can't make tequila anywhere in Mexico. Correct. It's one spe- oh, Correct. okay. And so, and in tequila country, the agave is like steamed via these industrial huge stainless steel ovens. So they, you know, there's there's that smoky component and the artisanal component is usually missing. Yeah. There's also in tequila country, they do permit coloring added. They do permit flavor adjustment. There's, there's, you know, oak flavor that can be whatever. So whereas in artisanal mezcal production, that's not the case. Gotcha. But 60% of all mezcal is made in the Oaxaca region, which now we're southeast of Mexico City, but it can be made all over Mexico. Nice. So this first one, I'm going to uh, show you the, one of the main mezcal agave varietals is called espadin. We only have a couple of those today because libation was like, take all of our mezcals. And I was like, (laughs) okay. (laughs) And so this first one is from like a negotiant, basically. They're called La Luna. And they will gather together great mezcaleros, the people that make mezcal, under the La Luna brand. But then they'll say like, they'll give all of their stats and let them make the mezcal however they want. It just needs to taste great. And so in this case, we have one that is made from Michoacan. It is 100% cupreata, and it's fermented in white oak. And that's pretty much all I'm going to tell you because people are going to be like, what does all that mean? And I want to <laughs> tell them, but I want to listen to music and let's taste quick. Okay. Mm, cheesy. It does smell like cheese, which is weird. And, and oaky and piney. I mean, I yes. just never tasted anything like it. Smoky, and we'll tell you why it's smoky. Mm-hmm. It's almost like kind of orangey, citrusy to me too. It's got yes. a little like yeah. yes, and mm-hmm. I think that's the the pine. There's the copper and pine stills. Okay, but okay. yeah, I just like there's just like nothing else almost that I want in life except for it always has to be post like six p.m. There's just so much going on flavor wise, which is really awesome. It's just fun. It makes it really fun to have a little sip. Yeah, yeah, and this is like, this is why, you know, I don't, I mean, maybe if I were at a wedding or something, but I don't want to like get saucy on mezcal. I just want to really examine it, per usual, I know, boring Jill Mott. But then I really want, it gives you energy. It's just so good. Okay, this next one, also Michoacan, this one is Manso Sawayo. And that's the type of agave? That's the type of agave. They say mage, type of mage. And... I do want to tell everybody when we go back to these who the name of the mezcaleros are because La Luna's, yes, one of the most important because you can find it easily under that, but the mezcaleros are really the ones who make it happen. In this case, Hernan Hernandez Perez. Now, this one is fermented in chestnut. Cleaner, but a little bit more bite. Flowery mm-hmm. smelling. Yep. All day. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just have... I was going to be like, let's have fish tacos and get drunk. But that's exactly <laughs> the opposite of what I was just saying. Let's music. Tell me about the music we're going to listen to before I'm like, let's taste all the mezcal. Okay. We'll start uh, in the past and move to the present. We'll start with Carlos Chavez, who's uh, really maybe one of the first Mexican nationalist composers and was very much into Aztec music. So a lot of his music has Aztec percussion in it or Aztec themes or Aztec ideas in some way, shape, or form. And Carlos Chavez was born in 1899, lived till 1978, wrote a lot of orchestral music, wrote a lot of solo piano music, a handful of string quartets. He wrote six numbered symphonies and a couple of ballets, um, his earliest ballets with Aztec um, Themes made him very popular. And so, uh, yeah, let's listen to a little bit of his Symphony Number no. 1, which he uh, wrote in 1933. And this was originally music for theater, but then he turned it into music for, a, he turned it into a symphony. So it's just one movement long. 
and it's called Sinfonia de Antigona because it was about Antigone. So here we go. that uh, that instrument in the background that sounds kind of like a bassoon? So it's a hecklephone, which is kind of a lot like an oboe. Okay. And it was one of the instruments that um, Wagner, the operatic composer, Richard Wagner, had invented. He had some instruments invented so he could achieve the sound he wanted. Okay. And hecklephone is one. Yeah, so, it sounds really, it's really interesting sound. Yeah. Okay, so mm-hmm. now what are these... It's they sound almost like strings. Really high strings and high high flutes, and you'll hear that too in a piece we'll hear from him later, which, you know, kind of emulating the bone and clay flutes of Aztec culture, really high-pitched whistles and such. Um, so this symphony, since it was based on a Greek drama, mm-hmm. Greek literature... There's weird modes he's using, weird intervals he's using. So you can tell, very 20th century, right? Because yeah. it's pretty intense. His second symphony, way more popular, way more tonal, and we'll hear that. There are actual percussion instruments from Aztec culture. So was this his first, his first kind of published work? Or his no, first? this is just his, one of his, this was just his first published symphony. Okay, symphony. Mm-hmm. All right. Yep, and it is, as I said, subtitled... Uh, Sinfonia de Antigona, just because it was based on the Greek Antigone business. So he liked trombone a lot too, by the way. As it's like, (laughs) yeah. I loved how, as I was listening to the playlist that you sent me, which I thank you for doing so, how how much of it sounded like eerie. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of it, because we had talked about Manuel Ponce and like, oh, are we going to include him or not? Or like, you love his music. I love his music. I do. So I'm glad that you went. I don't want to say left field, but names that mm-hmm. we can really introduce, hopefully, to a lot of listeners that would yep. be interested in expanding their knowledge of Mexican classical music. Because absolutely, because even though Manuel Ponce has more, I think, really achieved a little more broad appeal. Carlos Chavez was just such an important composer to Mexico. And he, he really was worldly too. He did a lot of travels and we can talk more about that in, uh, in the next bit. Uh, but, but yeah, it's, I love the absorption of native Mexican culture into Western classical music and Mm -hmm. all of these just amalgams of sounds that come from it are, are really cool. And we'll see that also in the music of Gabriela Ortiz later too. So, And what's interesting is when you say that these, you know, kind of meshing of cultures, because in reality, that's what all, all the things are, yeah, right? Exactly. That are artistic. And in this case, we have, um, you know, something that the word actually even comes, mezcal comes from the Aztec word, nahuatl mezcali, which means like oven baked agave. And, Yet distillation, the process of removing water from a substance and condensing flavors and keeping certain ethanol compounds and not others, that comes from the Arabs that came by way of the Spaniards and conquistadores, quote-unquote, discoverers of the New World. They brought over distillation. And then people started to dis. So without that, we wouldn't have right mezcal. Yet were people probably making liquor out of agave, pl- other plants. Oh, sure, in Absolutely. other ways without yep. distillation. Chewing. We talked about the chewing situation. Right. Mm-hmm. It's probably happening. But I think we should, as we're tasting through, I want to point out. So agave, we think of grapevines, right? Grapevines take about three years to mature. And as they get older and older, they're more prized. But we can be harvesting from, we've tasted on the show before, 100-year-old vines, 200-year-old vines. And granted, grapevines will produce if they stay healthy year in and year out. Agaves, they take seven years to reach maturity. Mm. And usually the most prized ones and the ones that are harvested are between 8 and 30 years old. Now, once you harvest that, bye-bye agave plant. 
Mm. So a lot of these mezcaleros realize like, okay, we need to keep our biodiversity of our other plants around because if we get a plague, we're screwed. Yeah. If we take one out, it's probably best if we plant two or three. So they're really cognizant of that. And then you have like the new companies that are coming in, right? And all these little mezcaleros, they can't compete. So they're like the demand right now for mezcal, it's like the boom in the spirits world. And so these bigger brands are coming in and being like, well, listen, Mexican government, what if we, you know, all the kickbacks, right? We'll plant all the agave, but then what clones of, like what types of agave, like the ones that are most productive, the ones that are most yield a ton, but they have the least amount of flavor, but it's like turn and burn. So that's kind of an unfortunate situation, but I don't want to talk about that. Let's, (laughs) Let's talk about how mezcal is made because then the six other mezcals we taste will have a little bit of um, a little bit of backstory. So the, the harvesting is obviously a very old process. It's the most backbreaking one in the story that dates back around the time of the conquistadores, four hundred ish years ago when distillation was learned. And basically, these mezcaleros and farmers need to. If you look at agave online, it looks like a big aloe plant. You pointed out because I showed Emily a cool video and some images. They have to cut off the leaves to get to the heart of the plant. And usually they kind of cut off some leaves first, but then they have to go in with an ax and like cut below the bottom of the plant. And you basically get this big aloe looking thing. And then you have to cut off the leaves to get to the heart or what people, it's known as the piña. Why? Because it looks like a pineapple. Mm -hmm. All right. And now these, if you're thinking, well, okay, that could kind of be rough, but like how big are these plants? Well, the tobala type of agave is like 10 pounds when you get to the core. Not That's like a kitty. You yeah. Know, not so big. <laughs> yeah. When you get to the aruqueño, now that those are like a thousand pounds once you get to the heart. What? So like who's who's cutting on that? Probably one person, but who's wheeling that around? Wow. You know, that's like wheelbarrowing or that's like rolling. You're not carrying that from the field. Right. And you saw, like I showed you that video, these are sometimes they're grown on like a little farm, but a lot of times it's like four plants over on that hillside, seven plants in that little forest grove. Yeah. So these these agave plants are it's not like it is in grapevine country where a lot of the times it's like one after another, after another, after another. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there it is, but not not all the time. Once they have these piñas, they have to build a fire to cook these piñas. And why do they have to cook the piñas? Because there are carbohydrates that are embedded within the piña that otherwise wouldn't ferment into sugar until they were, or they wouldn't have available sugars to ferment until they were concentrated by heat. And so they will take, imagine a conical swimming pool. And imagine that's a bathtub size if you're a really small outfit, like a kiddie pool size. And then imagine a conical earthenware pit that is maybe a quarter the size of an Olympic swimming pool. So it can be big if it's like a cooperative that's all using it together, right? Mm-hmm. And they'll the wood matters, what type of wood they're using to create the fire. So they'll make a fire in the bottom of this pit and then They'll put stones on top. Why? Because stones retain heat well, but also because you don't want to burn these precious piñas. Right. Okay? So now you toss the piñas on top, and this process is not necessarily always exactly as I'm telling it because it depends on the you know the customs of certain villages. They might do it in a different order, but they're doing piñas on top of the stones, and then they'll take all of the crushed goodies, I'll tell you about later, from previous harvests, and they will put that on top to to protect and kind of coat and stay moist. And then they'll throw a tarp, sometimes a janky-ass tarp on top of all of it. (laughs) Now we have got a mound that's baking away. And then they'll bury that all in dirt. And it's just smoking and firing away underneath. Smoking and firing away. And this cooking process takes between three days and 15 days. And this is all like when you are a mezcal drinker and you're learning, that's a question you ask. Well, how long do they cook these plants? Because depending on if it's an agave plant that has a ton of uh, available sugars, you might want to bake it less so that you don't have a super sweet product once you go and ferment and distill, you know, so that all will matter. And then it's time, I guess, let's taste taste one. Yeah. Because we've talked about harvesting and baking. Yep. And we'll talk about crushing after we listen to more music, but I think we should taste. I love that idea. So what kind of agave is this one? So this is also a La Luna Mezcal, also from Michoacan. 
And this is from the Bruto Mage type of plant. Bruto. Bruto. And this is from Adan Perez and Edgar Jiggy Perez. Kind of sounds like a rapper, which is amazing. <laughs> this is all fermented in chestnut again and uh, distilled with copper and pine stills. Ooh, smoky and fiery. Let's compare that one to the previous one that was also, that wasn't as cheesy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you notice that that the previous oh. one, the Manso Sahuayo, is like more, it's riper, we'll say. It's de technically not sweet because these spirits aren't really sweet, but it's a little rounder. And I took that, kind of a big sip of that last one. We'll see how the rest of the show goes. <laughs> Sorry. Word, yes. <laughs> Emily Reese just getting loose. We usually don't. On the juice. We're usually pretty good about that, well, but no, I just I accidentally mean, was like, nope. I've been pouring the most meager of samples because yes. we we both, I think, are fans of having fun, but like yeah. we want to put out a good show. But do you notice how yeah. that has like more of a kind of woody uh -huh. finish? Very. Yes, not, very. And not oaky, but like. Yeah, like, just woody. Like wet, like wet water wood. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mezcal. Yeah. Mm. Do you want to taste one more? Yeah. To kind of compare? Absolutely. This next taste is from the La Luna Negotiant and Michoacan again. Now this is the 100% Chino type. I said Chino like I'm Italiano. I don't know why <laughs> I said it like that. Chino varietal of mague or, or agave. This is all done again in chestnut and copper and pine stills. We're going to get a little different when we get into different producers, too, of other mezcals. Umenti. Is it? And this is from Patricio Arriaga Peña, which Arriaga, I just want to be like, well, do you have a Basque lineage? Perhaps. Ooh. But minty, a little like, not in a, with a pejorative, but like chlorine, like there's a cleaning agent, mm -hmm. but not mm -hmm. bad. Yeah. Like menthol-y kind of. Yeah. So couldn't you see when you get like a little one ounce of two things and you're just like very small little sips and they usually, what's great is at this bar Centro, they like know, usually when you order, whether it's an ounce or two ounces, they give you a little orange wedge and then they give you this like seasoning to kind of, they'll rim the glass with something oh. or they'll put, I don't even remember, it's like some, no, they'll dip the orange in this like seasoning and usually if you're in Mexico, it's like chilies and cayenne and stuff and like ants and whatever and they've obviously anglicized it for you know the minnesota market but i'm always like don't bother with all that i don't want yeah. any of that i just want the mezcal straight up you yeah know, little things but they usually have like little glassware like i really want to go to oaxaca to get myself even though i don't drink it at home dumb yeah. but whatever which one's your favorite so far mm, that's a really good question maybe the third one Nice. Why? Bruto. Bruto. Smell that cupriata and take a little taste. There's this only one. like the smallest drop left, but it tastes like it tastes like lime right now. Lime cheese, like fake lime. Yeah, I really do like that first one a lot. You know what's so great? Hmm. Mezcal. Yeah. So good. I, honestly, I just I couldn't even tell you what's my favorite. I I like all four that we've tasted so far, but I would definitely need to spend more time tasting them each. To really make that determination, given this is my first mezcal, you know. Do you, do you kind of love that after a hard day at service, I'd be like, okay, pour me some thought-provoking spirits, people. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, it's on. definitely that. It's definitely thought-provoking because there's so much that happens in each little taste from each. I mean, it's really amazing how different they all are, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, well, I'm giving us, I'm rinsing our glasses because mm -hmm. we're going to go on to other mezcals, but can we please go on to some awesome music? Yeah, let's listen to a little bit of the Second Symphony by Carlos Chavez. And like I said, he wrote six that are numbered. I think there's one that's just called Symphony, maybe from his youth. Okay. So technically seven symphonies, but um, six of them have numbers. Okay. And so we'll listen to number two, which is subtitled Sinfonia India, and it's got Aztec percussion in it. And this one is probably maybe his most popular piece. And... Compared to the first one, as I mentioned, this one is much more tonal, much more consonant, a little more easy, easy listening. to listen to. Yeah. Okay. So here we go. This is Sinfonia India by Carlos Chavez, Symphony Number no. 2. He wrote this in 1935 and 36, and we'll listen to a good solid couple minutes.
yeah, this sounds like we're in Europe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But so are those whistles Aztec whistles? That was a piccolo, piccolo, okay. yeah. So those shaker yep. sounds, Aztec percussion. Now, did he embrace Mexican culture? Was he, like, known for... Okay. Yes. I mean, obviously, he did musically. I wondered, like, if this was kind of a late... You know, when we think of, like, his his other compositions, pre-symphony, perhaps. You know, there are a couple other composers we've talked about that it took them a while to come yes. around to their, you know, whether it be their Lebanese heritage or whatnot. Yeah. So That's a really good question. I feel like, for him, it happened... Fairly early okay. in his life, 20s. So I think it was always kind of a part of him. But he did do a lot of traveling, like spent a lot of time in Europe, spent a little time in New York City mm-hmm. and stuff like and that. Like can... the piece the piece we'll hear after this, he was living in New York when he was commissioned, I think. Oh, okay. I think, yeah. And you can definitely tell that too. I mean, we, we've talked on the show about Georgian wines and like, you know, now Georgians are making pet nat. Because that's fun for them. Yeah. You know, so when people travel and the mixing of cultures, it yeah. ends up happening sometimes for a dilution of culture and sometimes for like, let's just mix it up. Let's have fun. Yeah, I love it. I really like this part coming up. So just a lovely little woodwind section with yeah. Aztec drum in the back. I mean, just quite a blend, you know, a, a true oh, blend. Oh, is that the, yeah, the little bass, the little... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that a lot, too. Mm-hmm. Just very subtle. Yeah. Antithesis of mezcal. <laughs> I mean, not really, because some mezcals are subtle, but actually the La Luna negotiants, a lot of them... Many connoisseurs would say they're really refined. Oh, you know, they're very, okay. Yeah. Um, which we might get into a few here that are like, holy balls, that tastes like blue cheese meets, you know. So we'll, <laughs> we'll see. That's really pretty. So we've got one more piece from Carlos Chavez. Let's jump right in. So we have that continuum, if you don't mind. No, really not at that. all. This next piece is really cool. This is f- written for 10 players. And I think I would pronounce it... Chochipili. How would you pronounce that? Chochipili. Chochipili. Mm-hmm. So Chochipili. That's because I speak uh, Aztec, ancient <laughs> Aztec dialects. <laughs> well, you're accustomed, I think, more to X's in the uh, Spanish language. Well, the ba- yeah, Basque and language for sure. Yeah, I just I pretty much work. would pronounce that in the Basque pronunciation and hope <laughs> for the best. So, which is awful. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I, yeah, it's it's. Likely that. I'm 90% sure it's that. Chochipili. It's subtitled An Imagined Aztec Music. And he wrote this for, like I said, 10 people, 10 players, piccolo, flute, and those to, again, bring up memories of Aztec flutes made of bones and clay. E-flat clarinet, which is looks just like a normal clarinet, but is about six inches shorter, maybe. It looks like a little okay. baby clarinet. So it's a higher pitched than the B flat clarinet. Okay. Actually a fifth higher or a fourth higher. The trombone, so the clarinet that I just mentioned, the E flat clarinet is to emulate the clay ocarina. If you know what an ocarina is, it's like a little tiny, you have a shark one. Oh yeah. Yeah. Little, okay. <laughs> you have an ocarina made of a shark. It's basically like a little clay whistle that has yep. keyholes on it and you can play little melodies on an ocarina. So that's what the E flat clarinet is supposed to be like. And then the trombone is to emulate the conch shell trumpet, which if you've ever heard anybody play a conch shell, hmm. that's what the trombone is supposed to kind of sound like. I love that you saw the deer in headlights look a little bit of the a little bit of the like scowl and you're like, <laughs> you have a shark one. And I'm like, oh yes. I'm okay. Like, you yes. have an ocarina. Yeah, it's, I yeah. remember that conversation <laughs> at some point years ago. Yes. Okay. 
And so those four players and then six percussionists. And the percussionists play, again, a wide array of not only Western percu- traditional Western per- percussion, but also Aztec percussion. So shakers, scrapers, and uh, drums. Yes. So this is a really, really cool piece. And it's quite short, too. Each It's three movements, but each movement is just a couple of minutes long. And again, this is Chochipili, an imaginary Aztec music. Such a cool piece by Carlos Chavez. Pour these as I listen. It's very folk music oriented. Like, I wonder if he missed home when he wrote this or something, or yeah, you know, he was 100% into folk music as well. And he was a theorist and a musicologist. He was really all the things that you could possibly be. He worked for a newspaper in Mexico City for decades and wrote hundreds of articles for them on music. I like how rhythmic this is and we'll say danceable it is, but yeah. yet there it isn't consonant. You know, there is, I mean, it is... Yeah. F- perhaps for the, this culture, perhaps for this time, but I really enjoy it. Can we go to movement two? Yes. And the trombone, I don't think has played a note yet, but when it comes in, it's pretty great because it just adds this whole different dimension, right? Because it's can't imagine, yeah. A, a brass instrument, and secondly, a low brass instrument, so it brings this kind of full hardiness to the piece. Just smell that while you're ta- while you got, you're listening. While I'm listening to this little E flat clarinet. We'll go ahead to the third movement so we can get some trombone in there. Ooh, that one is smoky. This is that's some high quality shit. So these are drums, but they're wooden. Okay. So they're they're these they have wooden tops as well. Yeah, I'll show Instead you a picture. Skin? We'll post a picture. Okay. Yeah, it's so percussive. It's like, <laughs> you and I were talking about Haim the other day, and I was like, it's so percussive, and it's so awful and great. And you know, yes, it's great. It's more great than it is awful of whatever. It was just, it's a healthy, guilty pleasure of mine. <laughs> and this is very that. It's like very percussive. Yes. So there you go. I love that. It doesn't... I, I'm sorry that I'm laughing. Because it is that whole different dimension that's like... <laughs> yeah. it's, it almost sounds like, you know, all of those percussive instruments do sound like they're greeting a chieftain. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, like an Aztec chieftain, perhaps. And sorry that that may come off as, like, really uh, uneducated. But then we have the horn come in. Yeah. And that's a very European way. When you imagine it as the conch shell, then that's, yeah. yeah. 
amazing. So amazing. I yeah. loved it. So what are we going to taste next? All right. So next we've, we've harvested the piñas or the agave. We've made them into piñas. We've cooked them. Now we have to crush them. Usually they have to be chopped up into several small pieces in order to be crushed. Because if you think of like, if you're going to grate cheese into a food processor, you don't throw the whole chunk in there. You might carve it up into like four or five pieces to make it easier on the blade, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. Same process here. Sometimes they can rest before that for anywhere from hours to months, depending on the local custom. But in most cases of artisanal mezcal, they are, as I showed you, they're crushed and add little water added, but they're crushed into the smallest of like pulp-ish you know, the sludge basically. Mm -hmm. And what you have is you have a stone platform and then perpendicular to that, you have a circular stone wheel. Thank you. That we will call the tauna. And usually that is attached to a donkey or a cow or a horse mule of some sort. And that's pulled around in a circle to effectively crush these small pieces of piña and sort of mash up what is the pulp from the fibrous parts that you you want to include, but you don't want to include in the end. You need to release some of that good sludge, right? Mm-hmm. Once that's all crushed, I mean, and now there are definitely industrial crushers yeah, f- for those bigger producers, right? That's now become legalized. But now we need to ferment this goodness. So all this crushed deliciousness is put into what they call a tina. And we've talked about white oak. We've talked about chestnut. That can be clay. It can be stainless steel. It can be plastic frickin' one-ton little fermenter vats. It's like whatever people have around, whatever they can afford, they'll use. And they'll add water from a local stream, sometimes a well, sometimes a tap. But that sludge needs to incorporate into some kind of liquid because you couldn't ferment that sludge on its own, right? It's a lot like rum in that way, that you Hmm. need to get it to a liquid sort of... You need to make it like a really low potential alcohol beer. You know, you when you take the grains, you don't just add the grains right to the fermenter, right? You add water to soak out that that goodness. So you do that here too. And that sludge, all of that together is known as the tepache. And that tepache, like I said, can happen in myriad types of vessels. Fermentation is usually native. And that comes from flowers. It comes from the agave itself, people, animals, all the things. That's where the the yeast come from. Amazing. And that can last from anywhere, like from one day to a week, give or take. And then we need to distill it. Now we have the sludge that tastes like the agave version of a low alcohol beer. Hmm. So, you know, however many percent alcohol, five to 11 percent. Yeah. Now you dump that into a still. Sometimes it's a copper still. Sometimes it's a clay still. Usually they're like retrofitted to the size that the little, the cooperative or the mescalero has. And they tend to be like ones that you can easily take apart and put back together and take apart and put back together. Whereas, you know, that video I showed you, you go to some place in Cognac, that shit stand that way until it needs to be fixed. That thing mm. is the size of a huge <laughs> factory, like Costco, freaking huge yeah. ass still. And that's just running, maybe not 24-7, but maybe like 24-4. <laughs> Here in Mezcal country, it doesn't really work like that. They need to be able to take things out, fix things really easily. And usually two distillations is the most common, meaning like, so you put all the sludge in, and you might incorporate less or more of the sludge per the water. At about 100 and high 70s is when water starts to evaporate from that, and you'll collect what is all the beautiful esters of this agave plant. And then once that cools, it recondenses. So you're left with like a 37-ish percent spirit. Well, then you whip that in the pot still again and distill it again, and that's when we get a about 55% spirit. They can be anywhere from 45 to 50 plus percent alcohol. And sometimes they're cut with water and you're left with this like gorgeous spirit that sometimes they'll age. A lot of producers are doing what they would consider hoban because they can sell it quicker, but also because you have this really raw, awesome spirit. Hmm. So why flavor it with extra oak? You know, you already have all these influences. You have the smoke, you have the whatever. So 
It's such a gorgeous process. Let's taste. Love it. So this next one, I just showed Emily a picture of. It's called the Respiral Series S. And these are from very artisan maestras or master female distillers. Yes. And so here we have Berta Vazquez. Berta. If I didn't have my own grandmother, yeah. I would want Berta to be my grandmother. Yeah. So this is all from the very popular Espadin, um, which we shall we'll taste this next to another Espadin in a second. And but that's this, the agave type. It is right? the agave okay, type. Just now making here, sure I understand. Yep, yeah, you totally do. And here on the label, it's awesome. It tells us the altitude. Oh neat. It tells us these are eight to nine year old plants. Five days in a conical, all it says is five days, conical, block, oak, fired. That's the oven. Distillation, double distilled copper alambique. And it was distilled in 2019. I'm smelling it and I'm like, yes, Berta. Yes. <laughs> fiery. Holy shit, it's so fiery. It's so amazing. It doesn't even say how much alcohol this effing thing has in here, which is kind of awesome. Oh, yeah, it does. 46.4%. Do you Ooh, notice? That one's got some heat to it, like totally almost does. like spicy. Yeah. Yep. Almost yeah. like chili, like heat, like cayenne or yeah, something. Yeah. 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 Now, do you do you get that? Like, if this were tequila or gin, we might be now. Granted, they've been really small pores and tastes, but like mm-hmm. we'd kind of be like maybe drunk, or I'd be like, oh my gosh, certainly loopier than I am. Yeah. Don't you just feel like you want to go run? Well, I mean, I've. That's one of the reasons why tequila. It just makes you happy. It's just so much happier than whiskey makes people mad and tequila makes people happy. And clearly it's got to be the agave because mezcal, same kind of thing. Well, yeah. And I, I think tequila and mezcal are so different because tequila sure. is so polished. Yeah. And there's obviously like mezcal, there's the line, right, of like artisanal down to the industrial and every shade in between. But the quantity of quality mezcal producers is so much – like. I won't mention names, but there's so like such expensive tequila out there that's yeah. made so shitty yeah. that you you're like you can't believe where all that money is going into some dude's pocket, right? Yep. Whereas like at least in this way we know it's going to, you know, the importer and the distributor, but also too mm-hmm. in this case Reina Sanchez. Yeah. This is 46% alcohol. This is from the Mage type Tepestate. Okay. 15 to 20-year-old plants. Wow. And it says, oven, 15 days, conical, oak-fired, the mill, machete and axe. Hmm. Mill, machete and axe. So that means Machete like machete? Yeah, so that means maybe that there is no tauna, that it's all chopped up. Oh, wow. So they didn't the use a donkey with a concrete wheel. They perhaps perhaps maybe. not, yeah. And when I say it, machete and axe, that's maybe one of the reasons why it's not so potently flavored because it hasn't been like pulped like it would be with a tauna. And yeah. then there there are only 200 liters of this in existence for the world. Whoa. And distilled in April 2016. Let me show you the difference between Tepestate and Espadin. Yeah, we'll have these pictures up on our Patreon page. Whoa. And so this is Raina? This is Raina Sanchez. This is the one that I kind of just want to take her out dancing. Perfumed? And Whoa. leather-like. Whoa. Yeah, this smells like you just walked into a haberdashery or something. Just wait till you taste it. It doesn't have bite at all. It's quite refined in that way, but then it's got this like leathery quality. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So good. Oh, yeah. I know, right? Now, So imagine that with a fish taco. That Just one might that. be my favorite so far, honestly. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, next we're going to taste Punta Gabe. This is 100% from the area around Oaxaca, done on a copper still, the Tauna situation. Uh, very traditional, a cooperative effort of sorts. we got a few different mezcaleros adding to this great goodness. And to me, this is like really value. There's a producer out there called Banez, delicious, easy drinking, smoky mezcal. That's sort of gone into a little bit of a like, you know, they make a lot of mezcal. This is very fairly priced, and this is sort of like your, what we would call everyday mezcal. And you'll note that softer palate. You know, that's for someone that maybe, you know, you can afford it or not, but like you're keeping mezcal in the house for every day. It smells like a new car. Yeah. So taste that. It's beautiful. It's just soft. It's just really 
easy. You know, it's like an easy, nice Beaujolais village, you know? Now it tastes Berta's Espadine. Just a... Mind blown. Completely different, blown. whole different program going on in this one. Mind blown. Yeah. Okay. Let me taste Raina's again. I almost was like, can I short stop you? But then I was like, I've never said that with Mezcal before. You start to, once you get past that smoke, you start to like fixate on, my guess is these soils are also sandy. I think Tepescate like is a kind of a high yielder. So you can tell it's like, you can get high bricks. So you can tell it's kind of maybe dilute in that way. That could be because of that. I'm not sure. Once you get beyond the force of like alcohol and the smoke, you can really start to fixate on things in a way that's pretty quick. And if you taste it enough and you're, you know, not drinking too much, you can really start to hone in on why things are the way that I couldn't imagine hanging out with mezcaleros because I can't imagine sitting and drinking like seven of these and just like getting it. That's yeah. Cause well, I could do that and you can just listen. <laughs> you probably could. And you'd probably be somewhat like you know, coherent. Yeah. Whereas I would after three be like, oh my God, I want to live in Oaxaca and like make chocolate and mezcal and all the things. But well, let's music and let's taste one more. Yeah. Well, you can live in Oaxaca. I want to live in Tlacotalpan. That's where I want to live. All right. That is in the uh, Veracruz region of Mexico on the Gulf of Mexico. And there's a river that goes through that town called the Papaloapan River. And Papaloapan comes from a word from the Aztec language, the Aztec language uh, Nahuatl. So Papaloapan means butterfly river. And this next composer, Gabriela Ortiz, born 1964, wrote a piece that she called Rio de las Mariposas, which is in Spanish, river of butterflies or butterfly river. So this piece is so great. I love this piece so much because it is for two harps and steel pan. So steel drums, right? And what a crazy, crazy combination. And it's such a beautiful sound. And let's just listen to a little bit of this and then we'll talk about it. steel pan. Gabriela Ortiz was born to musical parents. Her parents started a folk music band in Mexico that was really famous in the 60s and 70s called La Folkloristas. And uh, they would always go to this town, and I mentioned it was called Tlacoctalpan, and they would play music there, and this river is there, and she just has all these memories of being a child in this town, and so that's what this is supposed to be kind of a... This is her Homage childhood. to that. Yeah. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. And I, I love the way this piece ends in particular because it kind of, I think for a lot of the first maybe, and it's like a 10-minute piece, up until about eight or so minutes in, I think largely all three instruments are kind of doing their own thing. They're together, but they sound for much of it, kind of like they're doing their own thing. And then they have these moments of unity throughout, which are really great. And especially about eight minutes in, there's this really cool um, kind of halt of everything. And the harps play this big diminished arpeggio, which I'll play for you so you know what that sounds like. And then there's, again, just this unity of purpose that's really impactful after everything you've heard leading up to it. So uh, so let's listen to a little bit more, and then I'll skip ahead to that spot. Yeah, please. Mm-hmm. 
So as we're listening to this collision of cultures, I handed Emily the Don Ramon, Joven Mezcal, and to me it hardly tastes smoky, which here maybe they allowed for a lot of smoke to retreat before they covered it up because it's hardly smoky. Yeah. And it tastes like it's perhaps done in maybe a little oak, but maybe some stainless steel. Like it's very clean Joven and really interesting and pretty. Yeah. Not with as much bite. It's a good like entry level. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, you know how some alcohol really gives you that heat mm-hmm. in your throat. And for me, sometimes it can almost elicit momentary heartburn. Yeah. And not, you know, I don't know what that is and why that is, but this does not do that to, to me. It's, it's very mild and easy, easy drinking. And maybe as we're listening to this, this kind of sounds like, I guess I don't want to say easy listening because it's not like elevator yeah. music but in the least but it's very kind of nice to have on you know you can contemplate the world mm-hmm. you could also have it on while you're like meditating or cooking or yeah. and it's really pleasant Yeah, that mezcal by the way is all salmiana the that's salmiana the type of agave, type of agave. Okay. cool which you wonder what that's like Yeah, I haven't had too many salmianas and this place they are one of those that plant two for every one they harvest skip ahead to right around the eight minute mark in this particular recording, okay. which you'll find our playlist on our Patreon page. While you're there, we would absolutely love it if you could become a patron. We would love your support. This is a lot of time and effort on our parts, which we love to do. And if you're able to help us out financially, we would greatly appreciate that. There are tiers that you can join. Each gives different patron-only perks, but all give patron-only content, which we release. Uh, every other week with recipes and food pairings and wine pairings and music, classical and jazz pairings too. So hit us up on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash scores and pours. And of course, if you can't become a patron right now, totally cool. That's why we offer this for free because we want people to learn and we love to learn about new things and we think that uh, you do too. So yeah, check us out. Nice for uh, slipping that in in the easy listening portion. Just everybody's <laughs> like, yes, of course I can donate money to you. That said, as well, we are on Instagram at Scores and Pours. So check us out there. DM us with any show ideas you may have, if you have any comments, feedback, what have you. Uh, and there's also, Emily mentioned, patreon.com slash scores and pours. You can also buy some extra merch if you're so inclined. All right, so I'm going to skip ahead to this eight-minute mark, and you'll hear there's this big diminished chord, which makes you think maybe something spookier is around the corner, but then it just resolves into this beautiful unity. So here we go. butterfly yes yeah i love it i know in the end i just absolutely love the way this piece ends so we'll let it play out well then i won't tell you to sit mezcal and deter your concentration right now (laughs) so that's rio (laughs) de las mariposas by gabriela ortiz and there's a really neat uh, video of her talking about this piece, thanks to the Ojai Music Festival from Ojai, California. They've been around since the late 40s. Of course, they couldn't do their festival in 2020 because of coronavirus. Is this OJAI? OJAI. Okay. 
Yep. Ojai Festival. Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic classical music festival that happens every year. It's usually in June over four days. This year they're doing it in September so that everything can be in person. And Gabriela Ortiz is one of the resident composers for the series. So they have done, uh, there's an interview with her uh, up online and she's talking about a couple of her other pieces. But that's how I learned so much about this piece was thanks to the Ojai Festival's uh, series that they put up on YouTube other great composers that are going to be a, a part of that series this year, uh, Timo Andres and um, Rhiannon Giddens. She's an amazing banjo player, and she's going to be a part of the series. It's an absolutely amazing classical music festival. If you're going to be in California in late September, in September, that's that's one of the cool ones to go see for wow. sure. They always produce really amazing, and they'll have chamber a lot of chamber music, so a lot of you know, quartets, duos, things along those lines. But then they also do bring in chamber orchestras and do, um, you know, more orchestral pieces uh, in in that way too. So it's a really, really cool festival. So anyway, that's how I learned so much about that because living composers, sometimes it can be difficult to learn about the music if there's not this, you know, 700-year performance history or something like that. that. So I was really grateful for that. And um, but we've got more music from her that we can listen to momentarily if, if you want. Yeah, I'd love that because there's one that I think really highlights the mysticism that is a lot of, like the Me- Mexican culture I think is really hard to even call it the Mexican culture because there's just so many so many villages, so many what we would consider obviously like political boundary states, but that have their such a completely different identity. It's sort of like saying the United States. Yeah. Well, everybody doesn't agree on everything to such an extent that we should probably be little nation states. And, you know, like <laughs> you think of Louisiana versus Minnesota, why are we the United States, yeah. you know? And yeah. I think Mexico is the same way, you know. I, I, I have only been there a, a few times, and every region is so different and unique, and the flavors are that way as well, you know. Mm-hmm. So I imagine the music is too, and I think that um, the the there is that mysticism in the next piece that we're going to listen to. Sweet. That I really think keeps you wondering. Yeah. I will say I could have gone way more in depth with the types of agave or mage that we're tasting today, and what they look like, how, what kind of soils they grow in, the altitude they grow in, you know, what we would consider best, at least for the examples that we have now and available here in the United States. But they're more precise fermentation times and cooking times, but that I think is for Mexico part two, because there really is, I mean, mezcal is extremely, I don't want to say precise because that's not it, but it's really intricate to the village, to the specific mezcalero. And if you do have a negociant who's going around and helping these mezcaleros get known and mezcaleras, women, get known for their mezcals and saying, hey, listen, do you want to, I'll call it La Luna, but I'll have your name on the bottle. We'll have how many bottles you produce, however you make it. But people recognize La Luna already kind of thing. I mean, just look at natural wine. We talk about it on the show here for days. So it's like a whole nother world. Maybe we'll have a scores and pours mezcal only situation, <laughs> which then I'll just look shriveled, but I'll be happy. Yeah. Never mind. Let's listen to more music. Yeah. I mean, we're going to go to Mexico for sure. <laughs> okay. Wait, before we go on, you've tasted all the mezcals now. You said yeah. you didn't think you were like all eight. Whoa. Now you easily have gone through all eight. Yeah. What do you think? Which one is perhaps your favorite? I think. I, I don't. I can't say favorites, but I can say like top three. Totally personal preference. Not going for like what I think is best quality. It's like what do I want to drink? What do I want to be gifted? Kind of thing. Like what was the one that was really spicy? Like cayenne. Was that Berta's? Berta. That might be my favorite. Because that to me was like yeah that one I just had that yeah that one's badass. Is this the one you just had? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I think I think that one. I really loved that kick because most of them already have the kick of like you're drinking a really hard alcohol. So there's that. But this one also had that like spice to it, which is really delicious and unique. Do you agree though that with this kind of spirit, like the way we're tasting it isn't necessarily how they drink it in Mexico where it might be like by the whole glass full or whatever, but like- if I were to sit and pull, which is unfortunate, if I were to sit and pull out a bottle of mezcal up north yeah. with a glass with my family, 
Yeah. Be like, do you want some? They'd be like, no. And then I were to drink it, they'd be like, whoa. They might be like, whoa. Yeah. That's an, but I just don't think, I don't, it just doesn't even seem like a spirit in that way. You don't drink it like you drink vodka in a Bloody Mary. You're not like dump, like dump. Yeah. It's just like so not like that. It has it's just to like be straight. Yeah. And it has to be the smallest amount. It's just so pretty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm glad I'm glad you think so cuz I it is a little bit rough and tumble to get your head around and like I think the cupriata I love that shit. I love Yeah, the very first one I loved as well. Yeah. I mean smell yep. it. Yeah. It just smells like fucking cheesy. Like Yeah, that's what's weird about the that first one. It definitely doesn't smell it smells Yeah, the cheese thing really throws me off, but it's it doesn't it's so good though. Yeah, I think Berta. Berta. Wow, that almost yeah, I can really taste that citrus in that one too. Mm-hmm. I think yeah, the, the cupa, cu, what is it? The cupreata. The cupreata, I can really taste that citrus in there that I don't taste as much in Berta's. I like Berta. I like the La Luna, the cupreata a lot. I mm-hmm. think those are my two favorites with a third very close favorite being right. Reina Sanchez. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> they're just getting it. Yeah. I love that. I love that, you know, they're really, it's not just this, women playing in a man's world. Yeah. But they do have a singularity that's really unique, yes. really chiseled, textured. Yep. And I like the Punta Gave because it's just so easy and suave and nice. That'd be a yeah. great, like, you don't think you like mezcal? Here you go. Yep. People just like dig it and love it. For sure. Let's get eerie and terroir-ish. Yeah, let's listen to a little bit more Gabriela Ortiz. Yes. I'm just going to put the headphones on. Can you turn it up a little bit, Emily Reese? <laughs> and I'm going to put my nose in the glass and imagine things. so good. This piece is called Aroma Foliado. And it's inspired by a Mozart string quartet, the 21st oh. string quartet by Mozart. And they both start with the same notes. She uses the opening notes from the Mozart. And there are other homages throughout as well to that string quartet. But but yeah, this is one of her string quartets. She's written a couple at least. And it's, it's about a 15-minute piece. Presents as all one movement. favorite things about her music are these and it happened I spoke of it again in in the um, Rio de las Mariposas is these unifying moments that whether whether they're angsty unifying moments or tender moments there are these unity times that that are just I absolutely really appreciate in her music a lot well this would be a great place to say to the makers of amazing Mexican music, I mean, it's too, too many to count. Thank you for highlighting a few of those today. To Libation Project and to Traditions, Wines and Spirits, thanks for donating a lot of awesome mezcal to the cause today. Yes. Uh, we couldn't do this show without you. And to Scores and Pours. To Scores and Pours. This is like individuals in a glass, which is mm-hmm. amazing to me. Let's be honest, to Berta. To Berta. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott, sommelier, and radio host Emily Reese. You can find links and a playlist and a merch spot, all kinds of information about this episode, and you can support us financially at patreon.com slash scoresandpours. 
We are on Instagram at Scores and Pours. And please do consider supporting the musicians we featured today by buying their music. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Mr. Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc. Jill. Jill. Little Jimmy, little kitty.